What are the causes and consequences of Lebanon's meltdown? How is the deepening crisis affecting ordinary life in the country? Welcome to Connections, the Arab Studies Institute's interview program on current events, policy questions, and new ideas. I'm Moin Rabbani, and for this episode, we're delighted to be speaking with Nadia Sveti. Nadia Sveti is Assistant Professor of Middle Eastern Studies at the American University of Beirut. She specializes in the social and cultural history of the, Middle, of the modern Middle East and is a co-founder and co-editor of Jadalia. Professor Nadia Sveti, it's a real pleasure to have you on the program. It's a pleasure to be here, Maureen. Thank you so much for having me. Um, Lebanon seems to have been in crisis for several years now. First, there was the garbage crisis of 2015, then the mass demonstrations against new taxes in 2019, the Beirut port explosion last year, and now what is described by the World Bank as one of history's most severe economic meltdowns. You were until recently in Lebanon. We've all seen images of fuel shortages, power cuts, and now apparently water rationing as well. Mm -hmm. So I'd like to start by asking you, um, what is the impact of this crisis on daily life for ordinary Lebanese? Yeah, that's such an important question to begin with. And just, just for the listeners to know, like I've been in Lebanon, I just left um, for a brief, uh, I guess, break about less than about three weeks ago. So I was there until about three weeks ago and I'm obviously keeping in touch. Um, the situation, as you've sort of outlined, um, and the impact on daily life, it's incredibly dire. Um, so much so that even the generations who experienced and survived the 15-year civil war from 1975 to 1990 say that this is the worst period that they have ever lived through, like far worse than the circumstances of that war, which was also an armed conflict. Um, so the garbage protests you sort of you know, began with in 2015 it's definitely a temporal marker that many people point to as kind of the beginning of this sort of long period for that has resulted in this latest uh, moment of crisis today. Um, but it's important to note that even that crisis is rooted in the previous 30 years of collusion of state and private business interests in Lebanon. The result has been kind of an almost inexorable <laughs> deterioration of people's quality of life um, in the like in the five or six years um, in very particular ways. Um, you know, whether as a result of garbage not being collected around the country for months, um, major environmental damage when it eventually was, um, which has also resulted in the extreme pollution of the Lebanese coastline, rendering all but a small percentage of it um, swimmable. And that's if you even have access to it as a resident. Because of privatization. Um, because of privatization, exactly. So the sort of the, the you know, um, compounding of privatization um, uh, and the sort of extreme pollution um, that has happened in particular on the coastline there. In the last 18 to 20 months, um, this deterioration has ratcheted up, I think, almost exponentially, catalyzed by the banking and currency crisis, the COVID pandemic, and of course, the port explosion. Um, since the days of the protests, kind of euphoric days, you know, looking back in the fall of 2019, um, residents of Lebanon have seen the lira lose over 90% of its value up until today, um, rendering lira-based salaries almost useless. 
Um, in Lebanon today, there are at least three currency rates for the lira against the dollar, rendering any financial transaction an economic surprise uh, at, the, at best and a labyrinth at worst. Um, and that's when these transactions are even made possible. Prices have continued to rise over the last year. Um, the state's most recent removal of subsidies on fuel, medicine, and bread have only made that worse. The state's provision of electricity, and as you mentioned, water, which was already being rationed since the end of the Civil War, worsened in the, in the financial crisis to where over the last couple of weeks it's now being provided for as little as half an hour a day in some places, which means that generators have to fill in the rest of that time period. And fuel for generators, which have filled the void left by the lack of provision of state electricity, um, which has, and they've been doing this for, for decades since the Civil War. Um, the fuel is now selling at prohibitive prices on the black market, meaning that in the hottest part of the summer, in the midst of an ongoing pandemic, a multi-layered economic crisis, and in the wake of one of the most devastating non-nuclear explosions in modern history, um, residents of Lebanon do not have regular access to electricity, to internet access by which to conduct educational or business functions, all while prices of food and medicine rise, while supplies of those very same things dwindle. So the last few weeks have witnessed, as you mentioned, a new visible sign with gas lines which stretch for blocks, if not miles, clogging everything from highways and residential streets and making any kind of transportation to work or to school or even just to try to get away for a while um, a hassle. Um, that's when it's even possible. Um, you know, every time we think we've hit a rock bottom in Lebanon, it just turns into a trap door. And so that's that's kind of where this what the situation is at right now. But you seem to be describing kind of this double vice grip of um, not only prohibitively expensive prices, um, but also dwindling and increasingly inaccessible supply, even for those who um, perhaps would be able to afford some of these essential goods. Yeah, that's that's right. I mean, so so there's nothing if not uh, you know a plethora of, of inconsistencies and contradictions in this in, in this whole situation. So if you have a supply of dollars, whether you're earning that in dollars or you have someone who can sort of provide that, you are able to you are able to sort of access um, you know certain kinds of supplies um, probably more easily and more readily. Um, but if there's nothing to access, then then it doesn't matter what currency you have, or you just find kind of back doors or, or you know back windows to sort of try to to, to get those. I mean, one of the things that's interesting is is one of the things that's been you know um, a severe shortage over the last few months is is for example baby formula and and miraculously you know you go to a pharmacy and there's been you know all, nothing on the shelf or they will only sell you one um, at a prohibited cost. But when the subsidies were, were lifted, miraculously, everything, things came back on the shelf again. And that's because, you know, profits to be made. Profits to be made. People have, you know, so shop owners or, or pharmacists, sea owners, you know, we're just not putting them on the shelves, waiting for this precise moment to where they can then put them back and charge a different price. Yeah. And that's, you know, quite dramatic that you say people who lived through uh, the Civil War uh, describe the current situation as being even worse. Yeah. And on that note, I'd, I'd like to turn to the causes of the price, uh, crisis and get your views on that. Um, many people describe Lebanon as a country that's essentially run by a confessional political elite that's more or less unaccountable to the people, um, despite the existence of an elected parliament. 
Others point to Lebanon's opaque financial sector, and still others say it's a combination of the two with the added factor of Lebanon being the victim of uh, regional polarization, particularly between Saudi Arabia and, uh, and Iran. In your view, um, what, what are the main causes of the crisis? Is it a combination of all of these? Are there perhaps other factors we should be aware of? I mean, I think for, for to, get, to really get into the causes of the crisis, we have to actually go quite a, quite a ways back. It's, it's further back even than, than 2015, right? Um, you know, Lebanon's current economic system and current political system, right? Um, uh, or in the sense that they're, they're now sort of intertwined in a very particular way, it was basically, you know, set up in the way that we know it today in the 1990s after the end of the civil war. Exactly, right, and and what ensued precisely. Um, it instituted policies whereby the country relied heavily and continues, you know, to rely heavily on imports uh, for most of its consumption, food, medical needs. Um, this discourages local production, led to also a incredible dependency on foreign currency, um, in particular of dollars. And exactly, exactly, right. It's a it's a, it's a magic combination. Um, this happened also to privilege a small class of business interests, um, many of whom also were, you know, helped amass some of their profits and wealth during the civil war. Um, so this is also cannot be divorced from the period prior to the 1990s. Um, you know, bank owners, importers, real estate developers, uh, small business interests, um, who are also closely connected to the political class, right, if not necessarily overlapping with them. Um, and these groups amassed enormous profits in the last, you know, 30 to 30 to 35 years or so that led to the crippling of a number of sectors, um, those sectors that, you know, help create jobs. Um, there's been almost no diversification, uh, which has led to the crisis today, where we've become extremely heavily dependent on those dollar inflows, um, growing income inequality over the last 25 years. Um, and then when those inflows, when those dollar inflows began to slow, and then ultimately kind of more or less, you know, halted uh, starting in the fall of 2019, the system basically oh, before, has- Before the COVID pandemic. Before, yes, yes. The, the currency, the rate of lira to the dollar began to change in, um, as far as I remember, back like as early as October and November of 2019. So during, it was also during, and of course, it was one of the things that also continued to, you know, contribute and, and fuel the protests that were happening in that period. Um, so yeah, the system has essentially, you know, for lack of a better term, uh, crumbled since then. Uh, the poverty rate has doubled in 18 months. Um, rates of food insecurity are unprecedented for the country. Um, rates of immigration uh, have soared due to either- Emigration. Immigration, yes, to, you know, leaving outside the country. Yes, yes definitely no, no. <laughs> immigration into the country, we could talk about that as well. But, but here I'm talking about immigration due to job loss or salaries that basically have uh, little to no purchasing power, right, due to hyperinflation. Shortages of fuel, electricity, medicine, baby formula, as I was mentioning, children's immunizations now have just recently been notified that those are also, um, you know, at a standstill. And basically, you know, all of this points to a middle class that was already shrinking and is now basically experiencing actual poverty. Um, and the military and the police, I just want to add incidentally, have not been spared any of these shortages of either salaries, foodstuffs, products, etc. Um, throughout Lebanon, there are far fewer jobs, far fewer economic opportunities. 
Um, and the banking and currency crisis also means that the savings of most of Lebanese society has been completely decimated, if not depleted. So the middle and lower classes, right, are being sort of squeezed in this double vice, as you were saying. Um, and the business and the political class in the meantime are benefiting from the system, continue to plunder the economy as they have been for the last you know, three decades, um, storing their, self, their wealth safely abroad, Many of them were able to transfer much of that wealth from Lebanese banks, even after the banks told the public that they could not do so. Um, and people have resorted to basically higher rates of smuggling, hoarding, um, all of which is making you know, an economic, uh, an unequal society even more, even more so and far more polarized. Um, and a huge part of the situation today, to get back to your question, is the total lack of accountability for much of this, right? And here, you know, without going into too much detail, I'll just say, you know, Saudi Arabia and Iran, who you brought up in your question, they are, they certainly have, you know, a role, but they are very much part of this larger environment. And so I find that trying to apportion or even sort of equally distribute blame onto, onto those two countries is is actually detracting necessarily from this larger picture, which is that this is actually the system in which they are, you know. And it's primarily, involved. in your view, a domestic uh, crisis rather Certainly. than one that has its has its origins um, outside Lebanon. Certainly, certainly. Um, there are external contributors, absolutely, whether you want to talk about Saudi Arabia, Iran, the US or France, but, but certainly this is, this is a long, has a much longer history than either the last 18 months or the last six years. This is this goes back, at, you know, a number of decades. Um, and again, this a huge part of this the situation and the causes of the crisis is this also decades of lack of accountability. Um, and I'll just here just bring that back to the port explosion, right, which happened last August 4th of 2020. It killed over 200 people, injured somewhere around the neighborhood of 6,000, um, and displaced 300,000 residents. Um, and for months after the blast, hundreds of households uh, were in tatters, their residents remained displaced. Um, a World Bank assessment a few months later said reported that 14,000 housing units were fully destroyed, 25,000 were structurally damaged, Dramatic. over 130,000 housing units needed repair, all of this in the midst of a pandemic and a financial crisis that made those exact repairs financially challenging, if not impossible. And on August 4th, in less than a month, it will be a year since the explosion and there has been zero accountability. You, you focused quite a bit on, I don't know what, what you would like to call it, oligarchy, kleptocracy, um, uh, what you will, and that, and that you have this um, class of vested interests that have managed to um, basically uh, gobble up most of the Lebanese uh, budget and foreign assistance. Have, have we seen in, in the context of the current crisis significant capital flight uh, to foreign banks? And if so, have there been any efforts um, to seek accountability in that sphere? There, we've seen a lot of it, sure, absolutely, to, to foreign banks in the sense, but primarily from, you know, particular cadres or particular, you know, um, uh, business and political classes, to the best of our knowledge. Um, certainly the sort of average, um, you know, checking account holder, let's say in a Lebanese bank, um, has, has been unable, right, has been prohibited um, officially from, from transferring any of those, any savings or any of the financial um, um, 
you know, any of their salaries, essentially, anything that they have, you know, spent years or decades of their life, uh, you know, putting away um, to any external bank. Um, those who have been, have it's been, it's been laborious, it's been painstaking, it's also been quite, you know, um, ad hoc, it's on a case-by-case -case basis, depending on such particular situation, your relationship to the bank, et cetera. Um, and so that means that also um, people whose whose savings or whose whose salaries are still being in uh, you know or cannot be transferred out but remain in the banks have also lost you know over ninety percent of their value and so because they're held in local currency held in local currency exactly and then um, are people at least able to um, uh, access. The, the money that they do have in their accounts in Lebanon, or are there also controls on that? They are. There have been um, various kinds of controls on that over the last since the fall of, of 2019. Um, one of the remarkable things about the fall of 2019 during during the uprising was that banks closed mm -hmm. um, within a couple of days of of the protests beginning, which, which officially, at least in this in this you know narrative, were on October 17th. Um, and by the 19th of October, the banks were closed. And this is also remarkable, given that in 15 years of civil war, banks never closed. Sounds right? like a political move. It's uh, you know, it's, it's a little it's a little uh, it's a little political. Yeah. And, and also, you know, just just drove home to a lot of the, the you know, a lot of the public, a lot of the, the protesters, especially right, that that what they had long kind of suspected and known that, that the banks are in bed with the, the politicians is, in fact, precisely the case. Um, but just to go back to your question, yes, there there are there have been multiple kinds of controls that have been put in place uh, over the last 18 months. Um, which included, you know, ranging everything from, from being unable to then withdraw dollars to basically putting different kinds of limits on how much, how much lira, uh, how many liras you could withdraw from an ATM or from a bank in a I'm week. Sorry, just to clarify, this is to, to be able to use that money within Lebanon rather than to transfer it abroad. Definitely within Lebanon, right, mm -hmm. right. And then, yes, precisely. Um, if, if we look now, at the official level, um, the current prime minister, Hassan Diab, resigned almost a year ago, but has remained in a caretaker role because the Lebanese parties and their foreign sponsors have been un unable to agree on a new government and its uh, composition. In your view, what are the main obstacles to the formation of a new Lebanese government that might be able to um, begin to address this uh, crisis? What's so what's so kind of funny, uh, if you don't care what funny means in this context, is is that uh, you know Hassan Diab warned a few days ago that Lebanon was on the brink of quote unquote a social explosion, um, but this is an explosion that is above all political and decades in the making, right? Um, so yes, Diab is caretaker prime minister in a government of you know elites who've plundered the states the state for decades, really many of them again as I mentioned having also made their wealth during the civil war um, and then have, you know, gone through various steps since then to, to both keep it and augment it. Um, the main obstacles are again, you know, collusion of state business and banking cadres and the overlaps between them. Um, and that has come with it. I don't wanna, I, I, you know, it's easy to sort of remain at that sort of level of sort of right. macro level of these different classes. So I wanna actually bring it back down and say, this has carried with it at best complete obliviousness and at worst 
true kind of malicious neglect and lack of responsibility towards citizens and residents of Lebanon um, that they're supposed to be representing and safeguarding. Um, you know, political leaders who've amassed this wealth during and after the war and who continue to represent, you know, former, those, you know, who had, what had been former wartime militias and parties and which then morphed into political parties who mediate their constituencies access to resources um, through their confessional political communities. This is who is in, is in power at this point and have been for, for decades. Um, and in this regard, you know, the pandemic and this financial crisis, um, which was also of their making, right, were, have played also perfectly into their interests. So just as an example, um, whatever ideological gains were made in the uprising during, in the fall of, of 2019 were rolled back um, once the pandemic hit, even, even after that, even when the financial crisis had already sort of been, been clearly was, was, was snowballing. When the pandemic hit, right, sectarian party leaders began promising food and other supplies to loyal constituents. And so this was also whatever gains, and there were gains, I, I do believe that, that had been made in the fall and winter of 2019. By the time, by early 2020, um, you know, February, March for sure, a lot of these were being sort of rolled back and, and party leaders very cynically took advantage of, of these, you know, layered crises. Um, to reassert, right, to roll back those gains and to reassert um, their, yeah, I, their power over the constituencies, yeah. And I think the, the government and security forces also used the pandemic as, as a welcome pretext to ban public gatherings and further demonstrations and so on. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, yeah, and external, in, you know, powers like like France and the U.S. and others who allege to have, you know, Lebanon's best interests at heart need to stop supporting these very same political and right. business classes they well, purport to criticize. Yeah, th and that was in fact um, uh, my next question. I I, I would like to um, uh, devote one question to the role of of the Western powers in this crisis, particularly France and the United States. France, of course, being the former colonial power in Lebanon, has proposed various initiatives to address the crisis, but has been faulted for relying on the same confessional political elite that, that you've described as basically being responsible for where we are today. Um, in the case of the United States, the criticism is somewhat different um, in that Washington is accused of making matters considerably worse with the whole raft of sanctions it has imposed upon a large number of Lebanese um, institutions. How do you see the role of, of France and the United States in particular? I mean, I think you've you know, said it really well, Maureen. Um, France and the US and others, right, keep saying the right things mm -hmm. um, in a certain definition of right, right? But their actions belie these tepid critiques. Um, um, and, you know, in terms of, uh, you know, in terms of France relying, they both relied on the same political elites. You mentioned this in, in the Francis case, but I think that, that even with the U.S., you know, making, you know, imposing sanctions on institutions and even, you know, individuals in the Lebanese government and the political elite, um, this has gone nowhere, frankly. Um, and in the meantime, they continue to de have dealings with the, the very same, uh, you know, institutions and elites and, and, uh, and government officials that they are, you know, rightfully criticizing um, and yet simultaneously are actually not taking any steps to, to tangibly sort of um, uh, change, change anything sort of on the ground. 
Um, you know, a few weeks ago, and I think this was in your introduction, right? The World Bank stated that Lebanon is enduring one of the worst economic depressions in, in modern history, I think, since the I think 19th since century. Eight, one of the three or four worst since 1850, yeah. I think, was there. Yeah. Uh, and it's it's amazing because of course the World Bank has been part and parcel <laughs> of mobilizing so they the know very what they're conditions. talking about. <laughs> they, I mean, going back right in some in some version, you know, well well over a century, I think, um, uh, very much part of the making of of this cri of the crisis in Lebanon as well as of course other crises that are similar in other parts of the world. Um, you know, we're months, years into I think even optimistically speaking is going to be nearly a decade. Of, of financial crisis and attempted recovery. Um, and everything that that includes about a society's sense of precarity and insecurity and the way that, that societies you know, have historically kind of attempted to deal with that. Um, and which we're seeing play out in some of the, the clashes and the violence that, that we're hearing about today in Lebanon. Right. You know, what's hilarious is that Diab is also pleading with the international community to come and save Lebanon. You know, glibly ignoring that he and his entire, you know, class of, of political, I mean, entire class of political and business interests are responsible for the multiple layered crises that are happening and the very international community being begged to come and save them like France and the US with the World Bank, right, aided and abetted this precise cadre of people for the last three decades um, and helping to bring Lebanon to this point of, of crisis. Um, and of course, the death and maiming of those impacted along the way. And most recently, but of course, it's not gonna be the last part of the port explosion last year. Um, we need an overhaul to Lebanon's system to change the relationship between the political and business classes, um, to change the relationship between what people believe is possible and who they can believe makes it possible. Um, we need a state that doesn't mediate its relationship to its residents through religious or sectarian communities and leaders, an economy that is, um, you know, productive as opposed to precarious and in the hands of a few interests, um, and a sense of, of social economic justice, right? And I'll, I'll just say, you know, folks in Lebanon, by the way, are completely aware of this. During the 2019 uprising, there were palpable game plans that were put forth, right, imagining a different and better future for and in Lebanon. So, so it's not that nobody can figure out what's, what's needed. It's, it's a question of what are the circumstances that can be brought about in order to make that happen. And, and the US and France could be part of that, but so far we have yet to see that happen. Don't hold your breath. In other words. <laughs> um, just one, one issue I'd, I'd also like to bring up is, is, is that one reason, of course, that Lebanon has been in the news often in recent years, is, is the very large influx of, uh, of refugees. You, of course, have had since the late 1940s, a large population of uh, Palestinian refugees in uh, Lebanon, and more recently, um, a, a large influx of, uh, of Syrian refugees. And I, I just like to ask, you know, given how devastating this crisis has been um, to Lebanon's own citizens, I presume it's had an even worse impact on um, uh, non-citizen uh, refugees and presumably has also led to um, even less assistance coming to them from abroad in the context of, of the pandemic and so on. Yeah. What, what, have you, um, what is your sense of how this crisis is impacting those communities? Um, it's, it's as if not more devastating certainly to, to the 
to, to the refugee communities, particularly those that are sort of living together in, in, in either official or, or makeshift sort of refugee spaces and camps for sure. So that includes Palestinians and, and Syrian refugees. And it also includes migrant workers um, from places like everywhere, you know, as range, as broadly ranged from as Sudan to, to Sri Lanka and, uh, and Ethiopia. Um, and in, in, if we were to, to sort of talk about them as a group for a moment, they, their already sort of original precarity has been exacerbated to an unbelievable degree by the financial crisis um, and by the pandemic and living in particularly dense quarters and, and not being seen by institutions and organizations, whether international or local, as, a, as populations that are prioritized for any kind of um, safety or vaccination um, campaigns necessarily. Um, so uh, this is also really hard to gauge um, at the same time because figures and reports about these communities, um, whether in refugee camps or in makeshift places like the Bikha, for example, are very hard to come by. There has been a almost, you know, a, it's really hard to get um, any kind of information about what the exact impact, whether through you know um, quantitative figure, you know data or any kinds of you know assessments about about how, what exactly the degree of of um, precarity and suffering is, but it's certainly there. Um, yeah. And and finally, um, uh, Nadia, I'd I'd like to ask you, you. You spoke, I think, quite powerfully a few minutes ago about what you think um, should happen and how this crisis um, could be addressed. But I think there's also another question of what you think will actually happen in the coming period. Um, we've seen, you know, these very dramatic statements from the World Bank and the Prime Minister and others about what might be um, expected in the short term. Um, if, if you were to look at Lebanon in the coming months, 12 to 18 months, what's your prognosis about um, where the country and its society are headed? Yeah, this is really, this is hard um, to speak to um, without sounding like, you know, there, there's, it's a cop-out in the sense that, that it's really hard to predict the future and it's, it's not something that I'm pro necessarily prone to doing. Um, at the same time that, as I mentioned earlier, with the sort of trapdoor analogy, I, I've been away for three weeks, and in the last three weeks, it's gotten far worse than even was when I was there. So my sense is, is things will continue to get worse for, for well, quite a while maybe, longer. Yeah. If I could maybe phrase the question mm -hmm. a, little, a little differently, um, for those of us who um, are, are trying to keep tabs, so to speak, on Lebanon. What, what are the main issues we should be looking for to get a sense of where things are heading? I would suggest, um, okay, so I would suggest keeping an eye out for, apart from the sort of larger um, uh, news, news agencies and the, you know, the, the issuances from, from major organizations like the World Bank or from you know, governmental uh, papers um, or, or think tanks, for example, many of whom are, are very closely monitoring what's happening. 
to um, to also pay attention to there's there's incredible amount of activity. One of the things that there's that is also kind of incredible and miraculous and should be noted and celebrated is that people in Lebanon are enacting miracles every day in the middle of of this incredible moment. They are continuing to help each other, to organize, to write, and to fundraise, and to put information out there. Um, and so I would say, you know, to keep an eye out on local uh, writers, um, uh, no, newspapers, um, and, and journalists, and, and opinion writers from who are writing from Lebanon in Lebanon, um, including blog posts, including our <laughs> Jadalia, um, and also, um, uh, you know, to to there are multiple uh, now organizations that are putting out. Um, uh, sort of networks of for people who are who would like to um, you know kind of hire or work with folks who are on the ground in Lebanon um, to where they are you know kind of providing whatever support they can from from afar um, whether it's financial or any kind of other support and I would say that there are there are now you know a ton of uh, of of those organizations that are putting out these kinds of networks. Um, yeah, you know, I just want to add here, if I can, just to, yeah. I just want to add one last thing uh, on that note, which is to, you know, to add my voice to to a number of people who have spoken out over the last couple of weeks, in particular, um, addressing people who have in the last few weeks been, you know, kind of accusing people in Lebanon of being either apathetic or complacently kind of accepting this fate. And I would say, um, you know, I think in general, people are are kind of you know, at the one hand, bogged down with, with what feels like the impossibility of being able to sort of live and survive this period and find a livelihood and also find meaning in what they're doing, um, along, to, along with a legacy of, of suppression of protest, and also to pay attention to the different ways that protest can be defined and the different ways that, that pushback and, and movement uh, can be defined. And so I will say that there that the best way to keep tabs on what's going on over the next you know several months, uh, as you asked, is to is to pay attention to broaden our definition of what kind of what that movement might look like and what protests um, and political work might look like. Nadia Sveti, um, thank you very much uh, for sharing your views with Connections. Thank you so much, Maureen. It's been a pleasure.